This is the Killer Chronicles. In the summer of 1982, the Aryan Brotherhood was at a crossroads. Formed roughly 20 years earlier in California prisons, the gang established itself as one of the most ruthless and deadly inside the prison system and was quickly expanding throughout the state and federal penitentiaries. Although its influence in the free world was somewhat limited, in the 1980s, the Brotherhood, also known by names like The Brand, The AB, and Alice Baker, was making a push to become more organized and to run itself like a mafia-style criminal organization, comprising a leadership council that could profit from legitimate and illegitimate business, and which could enforce its bylaws with unspeakable violence. A leadership council had been formed, and its members quickly realized that they could take advantage of California laws to call meetings in certain jails and prisons throughout the state, enabling the gang's rulers to talk face to face and to avoid the risk of making key decisions through the passing of secret notes, known as kites, which could always be intercepted by authorities. But with the Aryan Brotherhood's expansion came the problems that dog any large criminal organization. Dropouts, rats, misfits, and betrayers. One former member in particular was starting to threaten the gang's secrecy by agreeing to testify in numerous criminal cases, not only endangering certain members' freedom, but also teaching authorities how the Brotherhood operated a massive criminal network inside prison walls. His name was Stephen Barnes, and though he obviously needed to be dealt with, authorities were keeping him in high-level protective custody, far outside the reach of the Brotherhood's promise to murder anyone who renounced his AB membership. So a solution was proposed. If the Brotherhood couldn't get to Stephen Barnes, they would murder his family and send a message to anyone else who dared to follow in Barnes's footsteps. This would mark the first time the gang targeted for a murder not a rival member or a former brother who'd betrayed the AB, but someone completely outside of gang life who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it would further cement the brand's reputation as an extremely violent criminal group whose ruthlessness knew no bounds. But who could they trust to carry out such an order? It would have to be someone not only loyal to the Brotherhood, but with a cunning willingness to plot out a brazen, execution-style killing of an innocent victim. Out of all the murders in their midst, one man stood out as the perfect candidate, Curtis Price. Price was a rising member of the Brotherhood who had dropped out of the Marine Corps at a young age and dedicated his life to crime. Though only 35 years old, Price's lengthy criminal record included multiple escapes, robberies, kidnapping two police officers at gunpoint, and two prison homicides. Despite all of this, Price was scheduled to be released from prison with no parole terms, making him free to move throughout California with no fear of arrest for being in the wrong county. From September 1982 until March the following year, Price would spend his last few months as a free man carrying out the Aryan Brotherhood's will, leaving at least two bodies in his path, stockpiling weapons for the gang, and robbing liquor stores to pay his way until he was eventually arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death. He'd go on to spend 36 years on California's death row before dying in San Quentin Prison of Natural Causes at age 74, with his case still under appeal and his career as a notorious gang hitman long over. This is his story, and a fair warning. It's incredibly disturbing and tragic, with no happy endings for anyone. This piece is sourced from thousands of pages of court records, interviews with people familiar with the case and Price's life, 
written accounts of the Aryan Brotherhood's history, reliable news sources, as well as transcripts and letters written by Price himself. Our story begins in Coos Bay, Oregon, where Price was born in April 1947. His father was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran who'd been wounded in combat in the Second World War, but got a job as a logger early into Price's life, but didn't stick around. Price's mother obtained employment as a secretary, but struggled as a single mom, later remarking that Price was, quote, a hard kid to raise. He was known to fly into a rage at the drop of a hat, breaking furniture or whatever was in front of him, and he even once set fire to the family home. He got into trouble at school and was incarcerated for the first time at age 11, when he was also made a ward of the court. After a brief time in a Catholic reform school for boys, Price was sent down to Eureka, California, to stay with a man his mother planned to marry. But when his soon-to-be stepfather insisted the young teen stop smoking, Price ran away from home, returned to Coos Bay, and sporadically attended school while focusing on hunting and living outdoors. While his life was clearly on a downward trajectory even from this young age, a glimmer of hope appeared when Price got his parents' permission to enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he later said that he benefited from the military's discipline. But four months into his enlistment, at age 17, he was arrested for burglary and sentenced to the notorious California Youth Authority, essentially a prison system for children that excelled at taking troubled teens and making them even worse. Though he received a GED and welding training while in the CYA, he was kicked out of the Marines and began using drugs while incarcerated. He got a job at Bethlehem Steel in the San Francisco Bay Area upon his release, but continued to get arrested anyway. In February of 1967, he was picked up for marijuana possession in Red Bluff, California, and made things ten times worse by escaping from the Tehama County Jail. He and five other inmates sawed through bars, jetted over the roof, and climbed down a fire escape to short-lived freedom. Price was rearrested within three hours and sentenced to 10 years in state prison. He paroled in 1971. After his release, he moved to Montana in search of work. Instead, he armed himself with a pistol, attempted to rob a grocery store, and got into a high-speed chase with police that only ended when officers opened fire on him. Amazingly, he was offered a plea deal that sent him to a six-month drug treatment program at a Montana state hospital. But he hated the program and his fellow inmates, many of whom were deemed criminally insane, so he walked away and returned to his mother's home in Eureka, California, making himself a fugitive in the process. Once there, he robbed a liquor store and used the proceeds to buy himself a vacation to Key West, Florida, but was arrested after getting into a fender bender when a responding officer discovered that he had a warrant. By then, Price already had two escapes and multiple violent crimes under his belt, but he was weeks away from committing the most brazen crime of his life up to that point. On December 29, 1971, Price was shackled inside a police vehicle where two officers were transporting him from one Montana penitentiary to another, when he used a contraband handcuff key to break free. Without being noticed, he grabbed the service pistol from Deputy Gerald O'Bresley, pointing the gun at O'Bresley's head. He then disarmed the second deputy, William Farago, telling both cops he would blow their heads off if they tried anything. Price unlocked the vehicle and unshackled two other prisoners in the cruiser, one of whom ran to the nearest police station to report the incident. Price took Farago and O'Bresley back around the cruiser and locked both deputies in the trunk. In the other freed prisoner, Rudolph Larkin, 
drove the police vehicle a short distance until he saw a jeep which belonged to a hunter, at which point Price pulled the jeep over, held the driver at gunpoint, and carjacked him, and instructed him to drive them to Idaho. Both cops were in the trunk at freezing winter temperatures for about 45 minutes until they were able to free themselves with tools from inside the trunk. The police eventually caught up to Price, but he used both Degalis and Larkin as hostages, threatening to murder them both if the police interfered. One officer shot out a tire in the Jeep, rendering it useless, and Price finally surrendered after a standoff. He was returned to prison, and three years later, was non-fatally shot in the stomach in an extremely suspicious incident at Montana State Prison, possibly by a man wearing a full police uniform who snuck onto prison grounds. After this incident, the Montana justice system decided it was pretty well finished dealing with Curtis Price, and cited a legal agreement between several western states designed to alleviate prison overcrowding to transfer Price to the California state prison system. It was here that Price became acquainted with the Aryan Brotherhood and honed his violent tendencies even further. The Aryan Brotherhood of the early 1970s was in its infancy. Founded in the mid-1960s by white inmates who were frustrated from getting the short end of the stick in conflicts with much better organized black and Latin American groups, the AB used racist symbolism, such as the swastika, to taunt other gangs like the black gorilla family, but decided upon the shamrock as its primary crescent. Its only real tenant back then was extreme violence. AB members figured that while they may be outnumbered in many prisons, if they committed acts brutal enough to shock the consciences of hardened convicts, like sawing someone's head off or stabbing a victim upward of 50 times, it would dissuade others from targeting them. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the California prison system was a bloodbath. Stabbings occurred on an almost daily basis. Murders were common. Inmates crafted knives from loose metal and exercise weights and also received smuggled weapons from corrupt guards, visitors, and other sources. Even zip guns or small Derringer pistols were known to turn up inside prison walls. Occasionally, riots would escalate to full-blown prison takeovers, including a notorious incident at San Quentin where six prison guards were taken hostage. Curtis Price fit right in. By the late 70s, he had already been accepted into the Aryan Brotherhood and committed two prison homicides. On May 29, 1978, Price snuck from his cell into another part of the prison and spent 45 minutes in the cell of AB member Ricky Carpenter, waiting for the 28-year-old Leroy Banks, a member of the Black Gorilla family, to appear. When Banks walked by, Price attacked, stabbing him 10 to 15 times and locking him in a bear hug while Banks bled out. The motive had to do with Banks previously disrespecting another AB member named Donnie Parrish. Prison officials decided not to prosecute Price, but he was sent to the prison's adjustment center for a three-year term. But the next year, Price killed another man, and this time found himself in Marin County Court facing murder charges. He was accused of fatally stabbing another white inmate, Dennis Bonnet, striking him five times in the chest and three times in the back with a homemade shank in June 1979. Despite prosecutors calling Bonnet's killing an Aryan Brotherhood contract hit and pointing out that Price was the only one in the area found with a knife and a handcuff key, his attorney David Mayer won him an acquittal by successfully arguing the homicide was self-defense. Mayer attacked the credibility of the two main prosecution witnesses, 
Jerry Hendershot, and former Aryan Brotherhood leader Ronald Harper. By saying the two were lovers and had only agreed to testify against Price so they would be housed together in the same prison cell. His acquittal meant that while Price had been caught red-handed stabbing two people to death, he was still set to be released from prison in the summer of 1982. Coincidentally, at the same time, the AB was implementing its reorganization plan to go from a typical violent prison gang to something much bigger. The AB's first council meeting was held in the Palm Hall cell block of the California Institution for Men, hereafter referred to as Chino, where AB leaders Robert Blinky Griffin, Clifford Smith, Wendell Blue Norris, Richard Terflinger, Michael Thompson, and others convened. They decided they would form a ruling council, assigning tasks to non-incarcerated runners, typically wives or girlfriends on the outside, and that AB members with pending criminal charges would use their subpoena power to bring leaders together for council meetings. One of the first tasks the ruling council needed to deal with was the problem of Stephen Barnes, who threatened the gang's most treasured asset, its secrecy. Though Thompson would later claim he objected to the idea of killing Barnes's family, but, quote, went along with it, the council unanimously ruled in favor of murdering Barnes's dad, Richard Barnes, who had allegedly made disrespectful comments about the AB. After settling on Price as the hitman, they subpoenaed him to Chino under the guise of testifying in an AB member's upcoming trial. Blinky Griffin, Blue Norris, and Thompson personally informed him that he was to be chosen to carry out the hit, according to state prosecutors. But his job would be by no means limited to the Barnes murder. He was to procure a firearm, eliminate Richard Barnes in a way that made it obvious he was the victim of a targeted execution, then stockpile weapons and await further instructions from the council. Price was released from prison in September 1982 as planned and was told to stay with AB member Joseph O'Rourke, a Southern California man who ostensibly ran a marine maintenance business called Leprechaun Marine, an obvious reference to the AB Shamrock. O'Rourke was the ideal host because his Southern California residence was in close proximity to the home of Richard Barnes. O'Rourke was also in regular contact with AB runners such as Janet Myers, who was assigned to assist Price in locating Richard Barnes's address. But before he could meet up with O'Rourke, Price had to do two things, obtain the murder weapon and spend some quality time with his mom. That takes us back to the Northern California city of Eureka, where Price began living out of his mother's garage and robbing liquor stores to get by. On January 15, 1983, James Phillips, the owner of Village Liquors in Humboldt County, was working on a night shift when a man entered wearing a green bandana and carrying a shiny metallic revolver. He forced Phillips to open the register, but only made off with about $80. Less than two hours later, Another Eureka-area liquor store, Liquor Still, was robbed in the same fashion. A robber matching the same description burst in, holding up the customers and the clerk, stealing one customer's wallet, emptying the register, and forcing everyone to lie down in a back room. One of the customers was a minor league baseball player named Clinton Brill, who played for the single-A Anderson Braves, and would later use his deep knowledge of athletic shoes to identify a pair of Price's Adidas as similar to those worn by the robber. On the way out, Price attempted to carjack a motorcyclist named Edgar Burke. While Burke didn't tell police about it out of fear of reprisal, he would realize years later, when he and Price were in Humboldt County Jail together, that Price was the attempted carjacker, and he eventually came forward with this information. The robber made off with $400. 
One week later, a Eureka couple named Richard and Dorothy Moore left their home to visit friends in Red Bluff, leaving their two adult children, Elizabeth Hickey and William Eaton, to look after things while they were gone. When Eaton arrived on January 23rd, he noticed that several louver panels were missing from a kitchen window, but could find nothing missing inside the home. The radio, TV, and other valuables were all present. Then, that night, it dawned on Eaton that he had never checked his parents' gun closet. He rushed back to their home, went to their bedroom, and discovered six firearms, five rifles, and one pistol were missing from their dresser. Outside, he found a shoe impression near the kitchen window, but it was washed away by the rain before police arrived. The next day, January 24th, Curtis Price turned up in Southern California. He stayed with one AB runner for a week in Santa Ana until moving in with Janet Myers in Claremont. Myers was not only an AB runner, she was also a heroin addict who supported herself through prostitution, who would later make statements against Price to police. She recalled him cleaning several guns, including a sawed-off shotgun similar to the one stolen from the Moors. She also told authorities that from February 7th to the 11th, Price had made her make daily trips to Temple City with him, where they searched for the homes of Richard Barnes and another AB target, Thomas Lamb. The next day, Price allegedly had Tammy Shin, an AB runner under Blinky Griffin, to take him to Temple City around 11 p.m. that night. A neighbor reported hearing three shots from Richard Barnes's home at 4802 Alessandro around midnight, but apparently never called the cops. Price returned to Meyer's home around 6.30 a.m. the following morning, instructing her to tell his friends in prison that everything had gone all right. Myers relayed the message to Blinky and Clifford Smith the next time she visited them in Chino with Tammy Shin. Barnes's body was discovered the morning of February 12th. He had been laid down on his bed and shot three times in the back of the head in an execution-style killing. There could be no doubt about the intruder's intent. Nothing in the home was disturbed, and only Barnes' wallet and a doll of Barnes's favorite cartoon character, Felix the Cat, were missing. His keys, a metal safe, and a shotgun he started keeping in his car after remarking to a friend that his son Stephen is, quote, gonna get me killed, had not been touched. Price immediately got on a bus headed for Northern California, arriving in Auburn on Valentine's Day. He had just over three weeks of freedom left. Five days later, in the early morning hours of February 19th, Eureka resident Burley Petrie drove his incredibly noisy VW Bug back to his home at 209 West Simpson Street, where he lived with his girlfriend, 22-year-old Elizabeth Hickey, the daughter of Richard and Dorothy Moore. He saw Hickey lying on their bed and called out to her, but quickly realized she was deceased. Petrie checked on Hickey's two young children who also lived in the apartment, then ran out the door to a nearby store where he called 911. Police determined Hickey had been bludgeoned to death by 15 blows to the head. Her body had been moved midway through the beating, indicating her killer must have believed she was dead, realized she was still breathing a few minutes later, and resumed the attack. There were also two small knife wounds on her breast that had been inflicted for a callous purpose. Her killer made them to see if she was still bleeding, so he could be absolutely sure that Hickey's heart was no longer pumping blood. Nearly a dozen guns owned by Hickey and Petrie were missing from the home, as was a floral bedsheet. Petrie was the most obvious suspect, as he and Hickey had an extremely rocky relationship. Authorities ultimately determined that he didn't have enough time to unlock the lumberyard gate, drive down to her home, beat her to death as extensively as she was killed, steal all their guns, return to work, and make his hourly call and punch a time clock as he was required to do. 
It was also noted that Petri's mufflerless VW bug could be heard from blocks away and woke up neighbors continuously, meaning that Petri would have had to procure a company vehicle, thereby taking even more time in order to pull off the murder. There was a clue in Hickey's stuff, a note that read, call Kurt about money for guns, and included a telephone number of a woman who Curtis Price was staying with and who'd picked him up from a bus station on his recent trip up from LA. Price turned up in Reno, Nevada, the morning of February 19th, around 11 a.m., giving him just enough time to beat Hickey to death and make the roughly seven-hour drive. By March 3, 1983, he was back in Eureka, where he was quickly recognized by a local detective as a suspect in the robbery of the Triplex movie theater in Humboldt County, the same night Hickey was killed. He was arrested inside a social security office. In a visit with his mom at the county jail, he passed her a note telling her to destroy guns and ammunition because they were, quote, brand business. Police searched a white 1965 Chevy Impala Price purchased just five days after the Hickey murder and movie theater robbery, and found multiple guns, a knife with the name Liz written in nail polish, a loose map of LA, and a note that said, Elizabeth, weapons, corner of Simpson and Pine, along with Hickey's phone number. In Price's mother's home, they found a green bandana similar to the one used in the liquor store robberies, a 38 caliber handgun, makeup, a blonde wig, binoculars, a note referencing the Triplex movie theater, a ledger containing contact information and names of several AB members, and a handwritten note with Richard Barnes's Temple City address, followed by the words, quote, send subpoena to him. On March 28th, police served a search warrant at a storage locker linked to Price in Reno, where they found guns that had been reported stolen from Richard Moore and from the Hickey Petrie residence, the latter firearms having been wrapped in the floral sheet missing from Elizabeth Hickey's bedroom. While the police had good circumstantial evidence against Price at this point, he was not formally charged with anything other than the triplex theater robbery. But what Price didn't know was that while the Barnes murder was being planned and carried out, changes were happening within the state prison system that would shake up the Aryan Brotherhood for decades to come. In September 1983, exactly a year after Price was released from Chino, Aryan Brotherhood leader Michael Thompson informed a corrections lieutenant at San Quentin that he was finished with the brand and wanted to drop out. That was a bombshell in itself, but Thompson trumped it when he claimed to have knowledge of the Richard Barnes murder and demanded to speak with an L.A. County homicide investigator. The Los Angeles sheriff sent Deputy Robert Ross, who flew to the Bay Area to interview Thompson. He revealed that the murder of Richard Barnes was just a retaliation for Stephen Barnes and suggested police speak with Janet Myers, who at this point was also incarcerated, for more information. When she rebuffed their attempts, police transferred Thompson and Myers to L.A. County Jail, letting them stay together in the same interview room with the hopes that Thompson would convince her to flip. Thompson allegedly used coercive tactics, telling her that he and Clifford Smith had strongly considered murdering her over her knowledge of Price's whereabouts, and that it was just a matter of time before someone in the A.B. decided she was a liability and that they would end her life. But the cops could make her life infinitely better if she cooperated. She acquiesced and agreed to talk to police, was given two months off of her prison sentence, and placed into witness protection. Just two months into going into protection, Myers absconded, and from then on she was on her own. Thompson's confession was more detailed. Imprisoned for a double murder in 1975 in Orange County, he admitted a role in more than a dozen prison homicides and said he still fully believed in the AB's creed, except their authorization to kill innocent family members of enemies, like Richard Barnes. 
He also admitted to frequently perjuring himself to benefit other AB members and said that he didn't think it was immoral to lie on the stand. Thompson's information bolstered the case against Price and allowed authorities to charge him with both Barnes and Hickey's murders, but still raised obvious problems about Thompson's credibility as a trial witness. Then, the following year, Clifford Smith decided that he would drop out as well. Smith was equally, if not more, violent than Thompson, openly bragging about his participation in numerous stabbings and murders that secured his membership in the AB, including the killing of Stephen Loser Clark, whom Smith stabbed 37 times after Clark called Smith a punk in front of Smith's daughter. He also said he murdered an inmate named Maddox while Thompson held the victim down, and even attacked his own sponsor into the AB, Butch Pappen, for refusing a minor order by an AB leader. He told police he'd help select Price as the hitman for the Barnes murder, and said he'd only dropped out after Thompson left the gang. Authorities started bothering Smith's mother for information, and he feared this would cause other brand members to view Smith with suspicion. He said all he wanted was safety for himself and his family in exchange for testimony. But he took it a step further by openly threatening a state law enforcement agent, stating that he would make sure the agent's family were killed if police failed to protect Smith's family from reprisals. Like Thompson, Smith admitted to giving false testimony frequently, remarking at Price's trial, quote, This trial was the first time I have testified truthfully. Two decades after helping convict Price, Clifford Smith would reemerge as a key witness in a massive RICO indictment against the Aryan Brotherhood's leadership in the federal and state system, implicating the gang in dozens of murders in a war with their rivals, the DC Blacks. Price was tried in 1985, though after two years in the Humboldt County Jail, he was suffering from extreme stress, resulting in conflicts with just about anyone he came into contact with. He was known for frequent fights with jail staff, including throwing food trays at guards, calling a black corrections officer the N-word and his, quote, slave, and writing a letter to his trial judge calling him a, quote, commie Gestapo traitor to the U.S. Constitution. He was deemed the most dangerous inmate in the jail's history, and after breaking a large hole in his single-man cell's concrete wall, Price was moved to a maximum security unit in a three-cell corridor, where guards placed him in the middle cell and emptied the other two, essentially boxing him in an area of complete solitude. Price complained frequently of the lack of ventilation, television, and how his shackles caused burning pain due to hundreds of buckshot rounds still stuck in his legs from when he'd been shot by prison guards during a riot in Montana. He wrote in legal motions that the, quote, cell is literally killing me, and that the guards were, quote, cowards and bullies. While upholding his jail conditions, a county superior court judge remarked, Quote, I wonder how Mr. Price has been able to last as long as he has in this situation, but he does. In some ways, he may be stronger than any other person in this courtroom. Price was later diagnosed with PTSD, depression, sensory deprivation, and antisocial personality disorder, but his mental condition seemed to improve after he was transferred to death row, which ironically allowed him more freedom than the county jail. Price did not attend his own trial after the judge ruled that he would be shackled to his chair in the court, telling the judge that if he were to be, quote, chained like a slave or an animal, he had no interest in being there. The judge said he took this as a voluntary appearance waiver, which caused problems for prosecutors in Price's appeal, as California capital defendants are required to be present for legal proceedings. 
During trial, the defense called AB leaders Wendell Blue Norris, John Stinson, and Robert Rowland to testify that the AB was not a criminal organization in an attempt to discredit Thompson and Smith. During cross-examination of Stinson, prosecutors showed him a note he signed with Blinky Griffin that contained a detailed discussion of the murder of Stephen Loser Clark, as well as an ongoing, quote, war with black and Latino gangs. Norris's testimony did not fare much better. He admitted the AB existed, but claimed it was a culture group, not a gang. But he said, quote, snitches like Stephen Barnes are despicable and are as bad as child molesters further cementing in the jury's mind that the AB plot to kill Richard Barnes was very real. When Roland took the stand, prosecutors revealed he'd been arrested with a handcuffed key and a hacksaw blade in his mouth just minutes before appearing in court to testify. The defense also attacked the timeline of the Hickey murder, arguing that Price didn't have the time to kill Hickey, drive to Reno, then return to Eureka the same day in order to pull off the triplex movie theater robbery that very evening. Prosecutors, though, said it was clear Price committed both crimes because several witnesses to the robbery ID'd him with a high degree of certainty, and that he'd clearly possessed Hickey's stolen guns. They described the Hickey murder as a cleanup job, inferring that she figured out Price burglarized her parents' home and could therefore link him to Richard Barnes's murder. It was also clear to authorities that Price was not done killing, and that when he stockpiled the firearms in Reno, he was awaiting instructions from the AB Council on his next victim, which very likely could have been Thomas Lamb, a former AB member who was eventually murdered in federal prison in a staged suicide, allegedly on the orders of AB godfather Barry Mills. After deliberating for nine days, the jury convicted Price of murder, conspiracy, and robbery, but acquitted him of a liquor store robbery in February of 1983. During the penalty phase, Price re-emerged from jail and not only attended, but gave testimony. Here, he claimed that he planned to buy the guns from Hickey and that she'd given them to him in advance of payment, explaining the note and his possession of the firearms. Quote, I was trying to help Elizabeth. I wasn't trying to hurt her. I liked her personally, he said. Quote, I'm not personally capable of doing what whoever did that to Elizabeth. I couldn't have done that. She was worth more to me alive than she was dead because she was on my bill of sale for the guns that she gave me. Price's denials did him no good. He was sentenced to death, and though his case would be tied up on appeal for the next 36 years, he died while still on death row in September 2021. He was the victim of a murder attempt in 2006 when three Aryan Brotherhood-affiliated inmates, including a member of the Nazi Lowriders gang, stabbed him in the throat but weren't able to kill him. But authorities quickly ruled out foul play in his death, noting Price had serious health problems dating back several years. An exact manner of death has not yet been made public. Price's appeal attorneys contended that prosecutors bribed a juror, gave Thompson, quote, a royal and lavish treatment in the L.A. County Jail as a motivator to testify, like presenting him with a Thanksgiving turkey and a knife to carve it with, and that a deceased Mexican mafia member named Danny de Avila had confessed to murdering Barnes. They also say Price was mentally unfit for trial by the time he was tried, after 40 months in extremely traumatizing solitary confinement conditions at the jail. They argued Thompson and Smith were habitual liars who gave self-serving testimony so that they could get paroled. On that last point, state prosecutors scoffed, writing in a 1997 legal record that in light of Thompson's admitted violence and a cavalier attitude about murder, quote, no sane parole board would ever grant him freedom. 
Ironically, in 2019, Thompson was in fact granted parole and freed after claiming he'd taken on a vow of nonviolence and hadn't even fought back when the Mexican mafia sent a prison hitman his way. He subsequently gave public interviews where he denied ever having killed anyone, in stark contrast to his braggadocious claims about violence to police in the 1980s. Thompson's newfound freedom was short-lived. In June 2021, the Sacramento Bee reported that he'd been arrested in Lake County on charges of engaging in massive wire fraud to the tune of several million dollars. In the end, the story of Curtis Price is a tragedy. It is the story of a boy who was rejected by his father, incarcerated as a youngster, and grew up into a cold, calculated killer who left a trail of victims, each needlessly killed to suit someone else's needs. After all he'd been through in his life, the betrayal by his own ex-fellow gang members, and with having nothing to look forward to except incarceration, violence, mental deterioration, and death, Price still testified at his penalty phase that, quote, thinking about the Aryan Brotherhood brings a smile to my face. Ironically, while the murders of Richard Barnes and Elizabeth Hickey did send a message about the AB's ruthlessness, they undoubtedly caused a fracture within the AB and led to the departure of Thompson and Smith who would spend years helping authorities fight the gang in ways that a lower-tier member like Stephen Barnes could never have done. Thanks for tuning in. We've got many other stories just as compelling as this one, but how frequently they are released will depend on what interest you show. So if you want to, like and subscribe. Thanks. <coughs> uh. <laughs>